Thank you for listening to the Paradigm Podcast. Paradigm is a young adult ministry that exists to see lives changed by Jesus. For more information about Paradigm, go to ParadigmKC.com. We hope this message is inspiring and life-changing. Thanks for listening. Copy God's Word. Once you find the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1 is where we're going to be at tonight. If you're new to the Bible, 2 Peter is actually at the end of your Bible. Go all the way to your maps. Those won't help you around here. They'll help you in the Middle East, but not around here. Go to all the maps at the very end and then back up a couple of books and you'll find 2 Peter chapter 1. I am so excited that you made the decision to get here tonight. If you're just now joining us, we are in a series of conversations that we're just calling Deconstruction. And this is a little bit of a buzzword. People are deconstructing all sorts of things. And when it comes to faith, many people are deconstructing their faith. And a lot of them are actually dissolving their faith. Uh, In fact, one of the fastest growing, I guess, religious uh, sects in America is that that you just say, "I'm, I'm not any religion. Are you an atheist? No. Are you a religious person? No, not really, and, and the fastest growing group of people in a religious survey in our generation would be those that have said, hey, man, I, I'm kind of done with religion. And so this word deconstruction is playing itself out in all sorts of ways, but we, what we're here doing is that we're having a conversation saying, hey, you should be asking some questions, and it's such a buzzword when you start deconstructing that it can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people, but I just want to bring everybody on the same page and with the definition that we've been given with deconstruction. Deconstruction Uh, What we've been saying is it is taking apart and examining our practices and beliefs to determine their truthfulness and usefulness and impact. And here's what we've been saying throughout the series, that the church, it should be the safest place to ask questions. (laughs) That some of you, maybe you grew up in a church or religious organization where it's like, you you just got to believe. If you have doubt here and you have questions here, what's wrong with you? You know, that kind of thing. And we we don't want that to be the case that the church should be the, safe, the safest place for you to ask questions. And so we've come in here tonight, and we want to ask questions that are really, really important to us building our faith and really owning our faith because we want a faith that is useful. We want a faith that is, that is truthful, and we want a faith that is impactful. And so we're glad that you're here tonight. And we're actually going to be having a Q&A after the service tonight. And so if you want to just jot down some questions that you may have, uh, we have a guy that he's actually an engineer by day, and, and he's an apologist, if you will. He's given a large part of his life to really study Christianity and make sure that it's the best faith practice that you can have, why it's true. And he's going to be sharing some things after the service tonight. So I want to invite you to that at this time. But anyway, one of the things that is that's kind of true in my life is that I, I really didn't grow up in faith and I really didn't grow up around the Bible. And so I remember it was in, it was in the South is where I grew up. And if we haven't met, you'll figure out that I'm not from these parts. I'm from the South. And in the South, I always say that they give you a birth certificate and a Bible. Like religion is just kind of a part of the culture down there. That's what I mean by that. And so I grew grew up kind of hearing some things about God, about Jesus, about faith, about the Bible and that sort of thing, but it never really impacted my life. And then I found myself a 16-year-old and I was going through probably the most difficult time in my life. It was the first time in my life when I remember feeling anxious. I don't know if you've, if you've ever had that happen before, where you really remember like, like tangibly, in like day after day, I'm worried, I'm anxious about a certain thing. So if we're just now meeting, uh, some of y'all may know this, but if we're just, just now meeting, part of my story is when I was 16, my dad went to, he went to jail for the first time. And my mom, she came to me because my parents were divorced at the time, and she said, hey, your dad's in jail. Uh, we were dependent upon some of his income to make uh, ends meet, and so it looks like we're not going to have a Christmas this year, and, and I don't know if we're going to be able to keep our house. And so I'm 16 years old, and my mom's saying, we're about to lose everything that we know as normal. 
And so I remember I was working like, I was working this job making like 5.15 an hour. That was minimum wage back in the day. And, uh, how's that even right? Anyway, I was making that and I remember coming home at night and my mom, she was working four jobs trying to make ends meet. And I remember coming home and putting my measly little paycheck after taxes were pulled out of it on her nightstand just saying, okay, God, would you help us be able to make ends meet? And I, and I began to pray because I really needed God and I was anxious and I was worried. And I was asking this question like, God, do you even care about what's going on? And I remember I was given this, um, this list of verses that I should memorize. I'd gone to this thing at a church and, uh, and I'd been given something to, to look at and I really just kind of threw it to the wayside. But I, I found myself picking this up in that season. My dad's in jail. We're about to lose our house, and I don't know if we're gonna make it. I was worried. And I remember one of the verses that was on the top of the list was Matthew 6, 33, and, and I, I remember just kind of looking it up. I don't know if you've ever done this. You, some of you, maybe you treat the Bible like a, like a spiritual fortune cookie, you know? You're like, God, I need a word, you know? And so I just kind of opened up to that verse, and, and what I found was, was really something that where I feel like God spoke directly to me in the situation that I was in. Matthew 6, 33 says, but first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto you. And then you keep reading the next verse, it says this, and do not worry about tomorrow. I was like, I'm, I'm worried about tomorrow. It said, there's enough troubles today. And I start reading around that whole passage and Jesus was talking about how he's gonna take care of you. He says, look at the birds, they worry for no food. Look at the, look at the clovers, the lilies in the field, they, they don't worry about how they're gonna get clothed. He says, and, and if I care about the, the flowers and if I care about the grass and if I care about the, the birds, I care about you. And that was the first time that the word of God really became alive to me and it spoke to me. And since then, I started slowly studying the Bible and trying to do what it said. And ever since that time in my life, um, and I, I have logged thousands of hours studying this book. I've logged thousands of hours teaching this book and I've logged years trying to live out what it says and I have banked my life on the truths found in this book. And today, the Bible, it informs my understanding of who God is and how I should live my life. But why? Why does it inform that? Well, I've already told you, because it worked for me. Like, I read some verses, and it spoke into my situation, and, and, I read, and I read it, and it was like, wow, God spoke to me. And many of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're here tonight because there's been a season in your life where you really needed God and God really showed up in a very specific way, and you're like, wow, God's real. And some of you, that's your story. Others of you, you're here tonight and you have no clue what I'm talking about. Maybe you've read the Bible, you've really needed God, and when you read it and you said the word out loud, it, it didn't work for you. And maybe you're here and you're wrestling with whether or not this Bible is really reliable or you can look back at a time in your life and like it worked for me then but it's not working for me now or maybe you have a coworker that you go to work with and maybe you've tried to bring up faith and they're like, yeah, yeah, but, but how can you really trust that the Bible's true because like there's so many different translations and so many different errors and over a span of time they start asking these questions and you're like, I don't know. And maybe you're here tonight and you're deconstructing whether or not you can really trust that the Bible is reliable, whether or not you can really trust that the Bible's truthful, and whether or not you can really trust that the Bible is impactful. If you've taken notes tonight, I've titled the message tonight, Is the Bible Really True? Is the Bible really true? And this is a really important question. Now, you may have come in here, and I don't know what brought you in here, but you may not have been asking that question today, but let me tell you why this is a really important question. Here's five reasons. Just give me five, I'll give you five reasons real quick why this is a really, really important question. Because if the Bible is true, then you can know how to have eternal life. That's one. 
If the Bible is really true, then you can know that there is a God that died for your sin and rose again, and you can have forgiveness. If the Bible's really true, then you can know that you are loved by God. If the Bible is really true, then you can know your purpose in life. If the Bible is really true, then you can know God Almighty. But if the Bible isn't really true, then you can't know God Almighty. You can't know God's purpose for your life. You can't know the love of God. You can't know for sure that your sins are forgiven, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. If the Bible's not really true, then you can't really know that you have eternal life. And tonight I want to talk about whether or not the Bible is true, and I want to answer that question, is it something that we can take to the bank? Is it something that we can bank our life upon? Listen, this is a really important question. This guy that wrote the book of Peter is a guy named Peter, and when it comes to deconstruction, this guy knew all about deconstructing. Peter had given his life to follow Jesus. I mean, several years, three years of his life, he's following Jesus, and he's like putting his faith in Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter's the guy, if you know much about the Bible, he's the guy that walked on water. Peter's the guy that like, I mean, he, he was in, in Jesus's inner circle. Like Jesus had the 12, and then he had the three. Peter was one of the three. But then he saw his Messiah beat and then he saw his Messiah brutally murdered. And when Peter was faced with the opportunity to take sides with Jesus or, or to say he doesn't even know Jesus, he completely deconstructed and rejected Jesus. And you could imagine all the confusion that Peter was going through, like the crisis. He's like, I, 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 I thought Jesus was this, and now he's disappointing me. He's letting me down, and he's dying. You're not supposed to die. You're supposed to be the king of the universe. What happened to all that? And he's having this crisis, and he's confused, and he's probably no doubt grieving because he's losing a, a, his friend in whom he thought was the Messiah. And so Peter, we find that he just kind of goes back to what he knew. He was a fisherman. And so after he sees Jesus die, after he rejects that he even knows Jesus, deconstructs and then completely dissolves his faith, he goes back to fishing and, and then something happens that changes Peter's life. He sees his friend, whom he thought was the Messiah, that died on the cross, he sees him alive. And it's this moment when you read it, it's like, it's like I don't know if you've ever seen Forrest Gump and when he sees Lieutenant Dan on the, on the shrimp boat and like he just jumps off the boat and he's just swimming towards Jesus because he's so fired up. He sees Jesus on the shore off of this lake or the sea and then they sit down and they eat a filet of fish together. They eat fish together. Like he has a meal with Jesus. He has conversations with Jesus. He didn't eat some mushrooms, have an hallucination that no one else saw. Like this is something that people were around and it changed Peter's life. He deconstructed, but then he reconstructed a strong faith in Jesus. And Peter became one of the greatest leaders in all of the church. And he's writing a letter to some people at the end of his life. And he's saying, hey, there may have been some rumors about whether or not we can hang our hat on this truth. There may be some rumors about whether or not we can really bank our life on the scriptures. And let me clear it all up, why we can trust the Bible. And he says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. He says this, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is we didn't, we didn't, we didn't follow some crazy things. What he's saying is that the things that we've given our life to, the Bible that we followed, 
It's reliable history. Point number one, if you're taking notes tonight, you could write this down. The Bible is reliable history. The Bible is reliable history. Apparently, people had heard some people saying, like, oh, the Bible, you can't trust that. It's just kind of a cunning, devised fable. It's just some things that just were made up. Now, when you start down that logic, and if somebody's ever said this to you, or maybe you believe this, let me just kind of give you three reasons why I would say this is not legend, this is not lore, this is not made up. It's not a fable. One of the reasons is this, it, that it's, it's too honest to be a fable. Like, if Peter was one of the guys that helped write the New Testament, and it's all make-believe, why would Peter write into the story that he was the guy that was walking on water? I would write that. But he's also the guy that was called Satan. That he's also the guy that was rejecting Jesus. If it was just a fable and just made up and Peter was one of the guys that made it up, why would he write those sort of honest claims about how he really messed it up? He wouldn't do that. One of, another reason why it's not a fable is it's, it's too detailed to be a fable. Uh, Peter's writing in specific times about specific places that people went, that they witnessed and that they saw. Why would he tell the story about Jesus feeding the 5,000 if that didn't really happen, if that was all just made up? Because the 5,000 that were there that day, they would have fact-checked Peter and they would have said, this is crazy. It's too honest to be a fable. It's too detailed to be a fable. And it was written too soon to be a fable. Typically, legends, they grow, and fables, they grow as distance happens from the original event. But the Bible was written in the lifetime of guys like Peter. The Bible was written in the lifetime of those that saw these things miraculously take place. That the Bible, it's, it was too soon to be a fable. People would have falsified the information. They would have proven it wrong. Now, now when determining if something is reliable historically, oftentimes we'll go to science but the problem with that is, is that the scientific method is not the best way to prove history. And so maybe you're here and like you're a person of science. Praise God that you're here. I love science. I've been the beneficiary of science. I studied my undergrad in human biology. I love science. And there's so many things that, cor that correlate with science and the Bible. We're going to talk about that in a few months. And so I'm so excited about where we're headed. But when you try to use the scientific method to, pr to produce and prove the reliability of something in history, it, it doesn't work. Because the scientific method, if you know science, and this will probably be a reminder to some of you guys from your basic science classes, the scientific method, it's got to be observable, it's got to be measurable, and it's got to be repeatable. And if you try to use the scientific method to prove something in history, it's not the best method to prove something in history. You can't take the scientific method and prove that Abraham Lincoln lived. You can't say that he, it was observable, measurable, and repeatable. Brother's dead, all right? He was assassinated. Unfortunately, he's gone. We can't repeat that guy, all right? And so you can't use that method. And oftentimes, we want to pit science against the Bible, but the Bible is primarily a book of history. And the scientific method is not the best method to prove history. That's why we didn't learn a lot about scientific method in history class. You didn't have a lab in history class. And so what's the best method to prove whether or not something is reliable historically? Well, the evidentiary method is the best method to prove whether or not something is reliable historically. The evidentiary method is, is, is asking some questions like, is there cooperation? And that's just a big word that just means, is it sustainable? Is there enough evidence that comes together to make this argument or this claim sustainable? And then you also have to ask, is it falsifiable? Can it be proven wrong? Now, here's what we find in the scriptures is that we find that there are zero internal inconsistencies. We can't find any internal inconsistencies. And we've got multiple cooperation. 
Here's what I mean by that. We have 66 books in the Bible written by 40 different authors in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. The authors probably never met each other, by and large, spanning over 1,500 years. And if you look in your dictionary, this would be the very definition of cooperation or, or sustainability or substantial evidence, rather. So unless you have anything that would negate what we find in the Bible, you have to accept the fact that based on the evidentiary method that the Bible is reliable history. That Peter, what he's saying is that we're not following a fable. It's reliable history. And this reliable history was written down by eyewitnesses. He goes on in verse 16 and he just simply says this, that we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Point number two, if you're taking notes tonight, you could write this down, that the Bible is an eyewitness account. The Bible is an eyewitness account. Peter's saying, we saw it, bro, with our own two eyes. And not just me. This wasn't some divine revelation that I got in some closet somewhere all by myself. There are multiple eyewitness accounts in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. That the Bible, it's an eyewitness account. That our faith tonight is not in what Peter believed about Jesus primarily. Our faith tonight is in what Peter saw Jesus do, that we are responding to the news that was written down and observed throughout history. I love one of Peter's contemporaries, one of his guys, a guy named John, he writes in one of the letters that he wrote in 1 John, he just says things like, we saw this, we heard this, we touched this, and he's overstating, we were there. This is something that literally happened in time. And y'all know this, an eyewitness changes everything. So I was a struggling um, postgraduate, you know, I was just graduated my undergrad and, and I was trying to start my own business and, uh, you know, what do you do when you're struggling and as a young adult and you're trying to start your own business, you got to get a little side hustle in. And I was just trying to find the easiest side hustle I could get, so I decided to substitute teach. I don't know if you've ever substitute taught. If you're a substitute teacher, God bless you. God bless you, all right? And uh, anyway, so I'm substitute teaching and a young adult and I'm, I'm like, got these elementary kids. I don't want to kill them elementary kids, you know, just snap on them, you know? <laughs> They can't fire you, you know. Anyway, so this kid gets up, and like I see him take his pencil, stick his pencil eraser first into the pencil sharpener. I'm watching him, and he's like looking at me while he's doing it. And I'm like, what's wrong with you, you know? And he pulls it out, and I say, hey, hey, young man, come here. I said, did you just stick your pencil in the pencil sharpener eraser first? No. I'm like, I just saw you, you know? Like, what if this went out and he's like, well, no, I didn't do this. And I'm like, no, this is an eyewitness. I saw you do this. And what I'm trying to say is that an eyewitness, it changes things. That if you're trying to build a case and there's an eyewitness, that is critical evidence and critical information to try to prove or falsify the case. And we have multiple eyewitness accounts in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. We talked about this in week one of this series, that people saw the resurrection, that there were different people in different places and in and, and, and different times. And, I mean, 300 people saw the resurrected Christ. We have eyewitnesses, and eyewitnesses, they change everything. 
Now, people, they'll hate on the reliability of the Bible. They'll say, well, you, it's not reliable. You just can't trust it because, like, I mean, it was written after the time. And, and, and you know, you, you maybe have, like, a King James version. And then you have, like, an English standard version. And you have, like, the message version. And you've got the New International Version. And, and some people say, well, it's translated so many times. And the message probably was lost in translation. And, it, and some people will try to explain that because it's been translated so many times, we can't really trust the reliability of the eyewitness account. Now, what that shows is that people have not done their research because the Bible is not like a game of telephone. Y'all ever played that game? You know, like, like you say something to that person, like I say something to you, then you say it to that person, and then they say it to this person, and so on and so forth, and I say something like, pink elephants are awesome, and then by the time it gets over here, it's like, you need to brush your teeth. You know, we've lost it in translation, right? Y'all played this game before, right? And so people will say, that, well, that's kind of like how the Bible was translated. Now, the biggest problem with that is historical research, and here's what historical research says, is that people translate the Bible, they go, back to the source of the original languages. And so if you have an English Standard Version Bible and you have a King James Version Bible, they've gone back to source texts. They haven't taken the King James Version and then allowed it to translate into English Standard Version and allowed it to translate into New International Version. They all studied the original languages. So it would be the equivalent of me saying to you, this is the pink elephants are fun, whatever the phrase is, right? And then I say it to you, pink elephants are fun. And then I say it to you, pink elephants are fun. And then we all come together and say, okay, what did I say on the count of three? And we all say, pink elephants are fun. Because I am the source, I've given you the information and you've dealt with the source directly. Then we come together and that's how the different translations of the Bible have come together. They've dealt with the original source. It's not a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. The people that have crafted the scriptures, they've gone back to the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic sources. We have the same source. Some people say, well, I, I just don't know. I just don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I can trust the reliability because, I mean, I, I, just, I just don't know. But they'll go and get their PhD and they'll trust in the reliability of all sorts of other historical documents that have not been under the scrutiny that the Bible has been under. I want to show you a graph real quick. I'm going to pop this up. And on this graph, you're going to see a few big dots and you're going to see like some rings and stuff. Let me just kind of decode this graph for you real quick. The center dot represents when the source was created. And what it's doing is it is comparing other ancient sources and it's telling you how far back, how long did it take us to get the, the, the source that we have available that we would call the original source? So that center dot is answering the question, how long or how old from the original thing that was written do we have our first parchment or something? And then the circles, the yellow circles, the big circles, that's representing how many existing copies of the original sources do we have? Okay, so what you can see is that the distance from the middle dot is explained in things like you've got Julius Caesar's and the Gallic Wars, something that we would read if we were studying something in history. You see Caesar's dot down there at the bottom, that, that, that the, the distance between its original writing is 250 years. 250 years. You also see Aristotle's Poetics, not up there, this is an additional one, that is 13 to 1400 years old before we have our original deal. With Homer and the Iliad, it's about 400 years, and then you'll see how many copies. You can see the number of copies in the little Excel spreadsheet on the left there. That you'll see that Plato has 210 original copies. Uh, Aristotle's Poetics, we'll see that, that we don't have very many copies of that in history. You'll see that Herodotus, we have about less than 10 copies. You'll see other documents, and you'll see the number of copies that we have from its original text. 
And we will believe and we'll study and we'll bank our, our life and our philosophy upon these writings and then we'll question the Bible. But the Bible in its original copies has almost 6,000 manuscripts available. That when you compare the Bible to other ancient texts, here's what you're gonna see, that we have copies that date back to about 30 to 40 years within the life of the, the authors of the New Testament. And we have 6,000 compared to 10 or compared to whatever the small number is of other documents that we would say those are legit historical documents. That what I'm trying to say is that we have a lot of evidence to say that this is reliable and that this is an accurate eyewitness account where people wrote things down that they saw and that there were other eyewitnesses that were able to fact check them. Peter's saying, he said, we, we saw this. We saw the majesty of Christ. We're just reporting the news here. That the Bible, it is reliable history written down by eyewitnesses. Now here's where it gets good. Because I think right now, some of you are like, all right, cool, like, thanks for the history lesson. Didn't know I was coming tonight to get a history lesson. But that's important, that we understand that what we're studying tonight is a legit historical document that's gone under a lot of scrutiny. But what, what makes the Bible really, really spectacular is not that it's just a really good history lesson, not that there's been over 20,000 archeological digs that have proven the historical facts in the Bible. That's not exactly what makes the Bible amazing. What makes the Bible amazing is that it is a reliable history or it's a reliable historical document that was written down by eyewitnesses and they reported to us the supernatural events of God dealing with mankind. Now, Peter, he writes this in verse 17. He says, for he, talking about Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Point number three, if you're taking notes tonight, you could write this down, that the Bible, it records supernatural events. The Bible records supernatural events. It's reliable history written down by eyewitnesses who recorded supernatural events. That Peter, he's recalling some of the things that he saw Jesus, with Jesus. That he's recalling some of the, the times when Jesus was baptized or when they did this, like, this thing called the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't know if you know much about Peter's interaction with Jesus, but he was there when Jesus was baptized by his cousin John. And, and it, it wasn't like a normal baptism. They go into the Jordan River and, and John dunks Jesus down under the water. Then he comes up and like a dove descends upon Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. Then the heavens open and they all hear this voice. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And you fast forward a little bit, Peter's been following Jesus, and he's like, man, that's, that's unique, and, and that's supernatural. And then they go up to this mountaintop, and Jesus tells these, these three guys, Peter, James, and John, why don't y'all come up to this mountaintop with me? And so they go up there, and then Jesus all of a sudden like, does this out-of-body thing where the inside glory of Jesus, who's claiming to be the Son of God, he like, comes out of himself, and he's talking to Moses and Elijah. And Peter's like, this is awesome. What's going on here, you know? And then and, and Peter just looks at the guys like, we should just stay here. Like, this is amazing, you know? And he's like, we should build like a, a, a t we could build a house for you and for you and for you. And, and, and it's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And he heard the same voice that God, he parts the heavens. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he, I guess he looks at the guys and everybody else around him says, and you gotta do what he says. And so Peter, he's calling to mind like this, like, like let me tell you, I was there when all of that took place. And I'm, I'm writing things down to tell you about the supernatural things of God. And Peter was there 
for perhaps the greatest miracle in all of human history. When Jesus was died, or G when Jesus died on a cross, when he was crucified, and when he rose from the grave, that Peter's saying, like, we, we saw supernatural things. I was flying with a, a person next to me this last week, and I was asking them, what, you know, what do you do? And, and they're like a second-year resident in, in med school, going to be a vascular surgeon. I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing, you know. Thank you so much for your efforts and all your hard work and that sort of thing to help preserve life. And, and I said, well, do you have a faith? And, and they began to tell me, yeah, I kind of grew up and, and uh, grew up in the church, but I really don't do much with that anymore. And, and I just said, okay, well, well tell me what's going on. Well, I just, it's, it's just not really relevant to my life anymore. And I start telling her about these things that we're talking about, this deconstruction thing. And, and I tell them and, and, and about this. And I'm like, well, how do you reconcile science and the Bible? And I start asking questions. And then, and then one of the things that comes out she's like yeah I just have a hard time believing the reliability of the Bible because like what about Jonah and the well you know she references this story and I'm like well it's supernatural like if it what if if Jonah didn't get swallowed by a big fish it wouldn't have made the cut all right it would have just been Jonah took a swim all right there's nothing spectacular about that you can do that okay we wouldn't be reading something miraculous and supernatural to this day and banking our life upon it and saying that that was a movement of God Almighty if it was just something normal. That the Bible, it, it, it's containing supernatural events. If you read the Bible and you go, wow, that's out of this world, yeah, because it's God working in mankind. And the Bible is reliable history of eyewitnesses that wrote down and recorded supernatural events events. And Peter's saying that this is, this, is, this is what we saw. We can't deny it. I can't explain it all. I don't know how he did the whole thing, but it was super, it was awesome is what he would say. And he's saying this is what we saw. And we wrote it down. And he goes on, he says that, that when we saw these things, we began to remember that, oh yeah, these, some of these things were foretold. That, that the Bible is full of prophecy and then it's also recording things that took place in order to fulfill the prophecy. And so Peter, he writes on in verse 19, he says this. He says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. I love this. That many people have made many promises about things that are going to happen in the future. But the Bible stands unique that it gives prophetic words and it also gives you the historical fulfillment of many of those prophecies. So that we can have confidence in the other prophecies that are contained in the Bible that those things are going to come to pass too. Because God is good to serve and to complete his word. He's faithful. And so Peter says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Point number four, if you're taking notes, you could write this down. The Bible records fulfilled prophecy. That's a really important statement. The Bible records fulfilled prophecy. That Peter's saying that we have this prophetic word confirmed, that the Bible's a book of prophecy and there's so many things that I could point you to right now. Like if we had time, I would be like, this, and then this, and then this, and this was foretold 700 years before, and then it came to pass here. And like things that you couldn't, like some people say, well, Jesus knew all those things, and then he, and then he manipulated his life to fulfill those things. You can't manipulate where you're born, bro. You don't have a choice on that thing, okay? And that's just one of several. One of the ones that's the most compelling to me is that Jesus quotes Psalm 22 that was written a thousand years before Jesus ever walked the earth. And he quotes it while he's dying on the cross. Some of you, if you're familiar with your Bible, you've heard the last words of Jesus. He said seven phrases that we have recorded. One of those is, Eloi, Eloi, lamak sabachthani. 
And that's, that's his way of quoting Psalm 22 that starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus' first audience that they were familiar with this psalm, they would have been like, oh my goodness, he's quoting an entire song. Like, like if I quoted some popular song and then you could finish the rest of the song. That's what Jesus is doing here. And so he's referring to this entire psalm. Let me just read you some of the psalms. Psalm 22, again, written a thousand years before Jesus written a thousand years and maybe I would say about 500 years before the crucifixion was ever invented. And note some of these things. It says in verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on in verse six and it says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. If you're familiar with the last hours and minutes of Jesus, you would remember that people were hurling insults at him and they were mocking him and they put a sign on the top of his cross that said, King of the Jews. And they said, if you're really the son of God, why don't you call down the, 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 the angels to save you? Let the Lord rescue you. It goes on in verse 14 and it just says this in Psalm twenty-two, fourteen: 14. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. They ran a spear into Jesus' heart to ensure that he was dead. And the Bible records that water and blood hit the ground, that there's pericardial fluid that will flow out of this sack around your heart. That he's fulfilling this Psalm 22, verse 15. It says this, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircled me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display and people stare and they gloat over me. That dogs in the Bible, that's a way of referring to Gentiles or non-Jewish people. The people that crucified Jesus were Roman people. They weren't Jewish people. He's saying that these dogs, these Gentiles, they're surrounding me. That they pierced my hands and my feet. There was no practice of crucifixion within 500 years of this psalm being written. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. Goes on in verse 18, that they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. If you know much about the crucifixion, they're rolling dice, the Roman soldiers, the centurions rolling dice to mock Jesus and saying, okay, you get his tunic or whatever it is. And Psalm 22 ends with this amazing declaration that it is done, which sounds oddly familiar to the final words of Jesus, tetelestai, it is finished. That the Bible, it's reliable history, recorded by eyewitnesses who wrote down supernatural things that fulfilled prophecy. And the reason why this is significant is because, because you gotta know that Jesus has died for you. Peter says that we've, we've got this prophecy confirmed. He says in verse 19 that you would do well to heed as light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What he's saying is like you consider the evidence and you consider the implications that Jesus died for you. I think we could study about all the different prophecies and all the different things and all the different historical deals and we could go archaeology and we could go all the historicity and we could go different testimonies and we could talk about all these different things. But the power that, ha that we have that will change a person's heart is not all of those things. The thing that changes a person's heart is the good news that Jesus died for you. 
I have at least two friends that were atheists and they began to ask questions about faith. And it wasn't evidence that convinced them to put their trust in Christ. It wasn't archeology. span It wasn't conversations like this. It was them wrestling with the fact that God sent his son, an innocent man, to die for them. One of them's on our staff. The other one was a, one of the smartest men that I know, made a 35 on his ACT. And he wept bitterly when he read about how Jesus died for him. And the greatest fulfilled prophecy that we could wrestle with tonight is that God sent his son to die for you, to be pierced for your transgressions. That our iniquities, our sin was laid upon him and he was killed so that we could have the opportunity to have forgiveness before God. And if you're here and you're deconstructing, I would call you to consider the great love of God demonstrated by the sacrifice of Jesus. And allow that to begin to shine light in a dark place in your heart. And you would consider the cross of Christ and you would consider the implications of hope, of love, of purpose, and of eternal life. And you would, begin to, you would begin to marinate and to stew and to meditate upon those truths until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. See, the plan was for God to send his son to die on a cross for you so that you could know the love of God in a very tangible way. And I urge you to wrestle with that. The Bible, it is reliable history that was written down by eyewitnesses to record supernatural events that fulfill prophecy so that you and I would know that this is God's word. Peter, he goes on to say this in verse 20, he says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. I love this. He says, for prophecy never came by the will of man. That we didn't make this up. This wasn't some guy looking at some tablets, just writing some things down. But holy men of God, they spoke, listen, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Point number five, and finally, if you're taking notes, you could write this down, that the Bible is God's word. The Bible is God's word. Peter's saying this, he's saying this is God's word. That the Holy Spirit moved through the penmanship and the personality of people. That God's plan to change the world is to manifest his glory on the earth through his greatest creation, and that's mankind. And the way that he's given us the most spectacular thing in his word is that he moved men and women to write things down, and he poured his spirit through the penmanship and the personality of people. Uh, let me explain it this way. I have a good friend of mine that gave me this painting several years ago. Now, some of you, you wouldn't really think this is that big of a deal. Like, wow, that's really abstract. <laughs> you know, like you see this in the museum, like that'll be $3 million. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I don't get it. But anyway, so he gave this to me and I was like, oh, thank you, know, thank you, Bobby. What does this mean? Now, Bobby, he, he's really creative. And when he gave this to me, he just said, this is an art project that I made with God. I was like, okay, tell me more. What do you mean by that? You know, sounds a little crazy. Were you at the, dis the dispensary or whatever? The <laughs> were you there? All right, you know, it's like, no. So no, he didn't do that. So here's what he said. He said, I, I put the canvas on the ground 
And then I suspended markers from a tree branch or branches and I allowed them just to touch the canvas. And then he said that God sent the wind to blow the branches and the markers moved around the canvas like this. And he said, and I, when, I, when I noticed that there was enough markings on this part, I just went out and I moved the canvas over a little bit more and the, God sent the wind to blow the branches and, and I just put the markers on the canvas and, and God told the wind where to blow and the branches where to move and, and the pins just moved around a little bit more. And once I thought it had enough squiggly lines, I then got my colored markers and, and I just added a little bit of color. And he said that this is a painting that God and I made together. And the reason why I show you this is because I think this is a really, really good picture of what happens when we read the Bible and we go, okay, how, how did, is this God or is this man? I mean, what, what exactly worked, worked, how did this all move? And what Peter's saying is like, you can bank your, your, your life upon the, the reliability of God's word because he's saying that the Holy Spirit moved men and women to write down the things that they saw God doing that were supernatural. And the Holy Spirit poured himself through the penmanship of those men and women and their personality. That God sent his spirit to blow the wind and to move the markers and then they colored in a little bit. And this is how we can trust that God was at work with these things. Now there's many other reasons why we can trust in the, the, the bringing together and, and the certain criteria and things like that. But according to what Peter's saying, he's saying this, that God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, that God wrote a book. And some of you are thinking here tonight, like, well, you know, I, I, I just need more evidence in my faith. And I would just say this, the Bible is God's evidence that he is real. And the fact that we have this book and that this book is not some afterthought, this book is the best-selling book of all time, that more paintings have been painted, more other books have been written about this book, more songs have been crafted from the words in this book than any other book in human history. That the Bible is reliable. It's reliable history that was written down by eyewitnesses that, that they recorded supernatural events that fulfilled prophecy so that we could know that this is God's word. And because the Bible's true, then you can know God. Because the Bible's true, then you can know that he loves you. And because the Bible's true, you can know that you have a purpose in life. And because the Bible's true, you can know that there is forgiveness for your sins. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And because the Bible's reliable, you can know that you can have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for today. God, I thank you just for this opportunity to open up your word. God, I pray that we would begin to wrestle with how profound it is that you preserved this book. And God, I ask that you would help us just to begin to be open to the truth that you wrote a book. God, if somebody's here and they, they don't know you, God, I pray that you would speak to them clearly, that you knit them together in their mother's womb, like your word says, that you have a plan for them to prosper them, like your word says, that that. If you are in them, then greater is you that is in them than anything that is in this world, like your word says. God, that you sent your son to die for our sin because you so love the world and if we put our faith and trust in you, then we can have everlasting life. You didn't come to this world to condemn this world, but to save this world, like your word says. And you are God alone.
And, and we just thank you that we can know that you are love, like your word says. God, I pray that you'd give us faith to believe and you would help us to use our minds to consider the evidence of how we have a Bible that is reliable, that was written by eyewitnesses who recorded supernatural events that fulfilled prophecies so that we would know that this is indeed your word. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.